0: Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks again for joining us for NACTA's virtual program. For those history buffs in the audience, it has been exactly one year ago today, and you all know where you were, when uh, Rudy Gobert with the Utah Jazz tested positive with COVID virus. That evening, the game against Oklahoma City was canceled, and here we are today, one year later, and I know to most of us, it seems like 10 or 12. As leaders, we must remain positive and although this past year have been trying at best, there is a light at the end of the tunnel as our events have continued to evolve and precautions are in place for a COVID-centric March Madness. Our staff has worked diligently in managing in excess of 250 hours of virtual programming since mid-May. And I specifically would like to recognize two of our staff members, Katie Hine and Dana Leroy for their efforts in programming and managing the NACTA virtual programming portal. As far as today's session is concerned, as we continue to keep the momentum surrounding discussions related to social justice, the topic that we will be discussing today is one that administrators across the country now engage in on a day-to-day basis. Our student athletes are independent, strong role models that seek to be advocates for positive change in the world It's up to us as administrators to guide, lead, and support them in their efforts. Today's conversation will explore strategies for supporting student-athlete activism and grace peaceful protests in college athletics. Led led today by our good friend, Nevin Capel, founder and principal consultant for Return on Inclusion, today's panelists will share their personal experiences advancing racial justice through an intersectional lens while addressing the challenges impacting the lives of student athletes the most. We're pleased to have with us today Clyde Doty, Vice President for Athletics and Recreation at Bowie State University, Tim Duncan, Vice President of Athletics and Recreation at the University of New Orleans, and Tanya Vogel, Director of Athletics at George Washington University. Panelists, thank you for joining us today. Now we all know how this works. We want this session to be interactive. So please in the chat, in the bottom of the screen in the chat portion, please um, towards the middle or end of this session, please list your questions in the chat box and um, Nevin will make certain to allow about 15 or 20 minutes at the end to answer any questions you may have. It's really important that we hear your voice through all this and the intent is to make this as interactive as possible. Lastly, I'd like, like to recognize uh, our friends at MOA for their partnership on this session and thank you for your continued uh, support in the DE&I space. So thank you all again for joining us today. Nevin, the floor is yours, thank you.
1: Thank you, Bob, and um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, Bob, I also want to say thank you to to NAFTA and and MOA for hosting this important discussion um, beyond X's and O's student athlete activism, Um, and and what is most important to me is just these esteemed panelists, Clyde Dowdy, uh, Tim Duncan, and and, and Tanya Vogel, who I am honored to spend the next hour with. Um, Thank you for saying yes to joining this discussion. I, I know it's not easy to sit in front of your colleagues and talk about activism, you know, but I, I really admire your leadership and, and your courage and the incredible work that you do. Um, so I don't wanna take any more time away from you. And I really want us to, to get started and, and really dive into to some of these questions. So I'm gonna start with, with Clyde. Um, you know, I know it's been a, a challenging year, Clyde, what is one word, and I, I don't think you can sum it up in just word, one word, so if you need to, um, what are what are some words to really describe how you are feeling?
2: Well, well, thank you, Nevin, and I appreciate the opportunity to be in this space with these great folks and the folks out there who are viewing us today. You know, so a lot of things run through my mind when you answer that question, and the first one that comes to mind is being blessed. I'm blessed to be in this space, to have this opportunity to engage with individuals and helped them through this period. As Bob had said, it's been a long year for everybody. Uh, we're still trying to figure things out. but it looks like there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, we're still not at the station, but we're moving forward a bit. So, you know, I, I look at also to having patience because patience and I, and I used to term this aggressive patience. You know, you gotta be moving forward, but you can't run too fast because people aren't gonna be able to keep up with you. So. When things are at their worst, great leaders have to be at their best. And I think right now, that's where we are at. And the group that is on this call right now, we're at our best right now trying to manage the moment with uh, all the concerns that we we deal with.
1: Thank you, Clyde. Tim?
3: Yeah, thanks, Nevin, for um, the question. And thank you, uh, Bob and Katie, for inviting me to participate on this. I think it's a wonderful opportunity to To learn from my colleagues but um, transformational I think this time is transformational I think uh, our student athlete experience has been transformational, they found their voices even more so it's been trending that way over the past few years, but you know with the events that happened. Uh, from the social unrest and that being exacerbated by this pandemic when everyone is on their devices and on their televisions and not a lot of human interaction. I think it's a time that our student athletes have started to find their voices and um, that trans, and it's just transformational on how we'll manage the relationships with them from now on. I don't think this, as many people said, I don't think this is just a, 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 a moment in time. I think it's a movement that. Um, was birthed right right now.
1: Thank you Tom and Tanya.
4: Yeah I want to thank Katie and Bob for inviting me and Nevin I just want to say thank you to you for all the work you're doing um, with return on inclusion and I um, just appreciate you in, in your leadership during this time. You know it's interesting when I was a freshman in college my teammates told me I was pensive and so when I'm asked that question that's that's the word I return to. I, I feel like um, everything that's been going on for the past year has caused so much reflection. Um, there's been so much of self-education and so much discovery. And so I, I, I really just feel like I'm thinking a lot. I'm thinking all the time about what's going on and, and how we are to lead through this time. Um, if I'm going to add a second word, it would just be grateful. Um, I, you know, I've been able to spend my entire career in college athletics and I'm super grateful that I get to work every day with incredible students and coaches and staff um, who are really embracing this time. You know, as Tim said, it is, it's a time of, of transformation a time of movement. And I think student athletes have really embraced that and, and they are eager to participate in this movement.
1: And, and, and Tanya, I'm, I'm grateful for you as well. And, and Tim and, and Clyde, you know, I know you all are doing just tremendous work um, at your institutions, but even so far beyond that. And I would love to just hear a little bit more about your story and, and how you really found the, the courage and compassion to, to be able to lead inclusively. So Tanya, if you could start us off and then and then Tim and Clyde.
4: Cool. Um, yeah, well, you know, for those of you guys that don't know me, I've been working in college athletics my entire career. I played uh, I played soccer at GW, and then I went right into coaching afterwards. I coached for 15 years and then made the shift into administration. You know, when you're, you're coaching, you're doing a lot more than X's and O's. You, you know, you're really working with students from the recruitment process all the way through graduation and into their time as alumni. And, and I kept falling back on this idea that I'm I'm really driven. I'm really kind of centered on this idea of trying to find trying to help people find the courage to become the best versions of themselves. And and then at some point, you know, I was having conversations with students and I realized, like, wait, you're not you're not the best version of yourself because you're holding back. And um, it was really, you know, my my ability to come out as a leader and and be open with who I am as a person that allowed me to kind of breakthrough and really make strides and and um, you know I think in finding that courage for myself it's just it's just transformed how I lead and and how I have conversations with people and talk through really hard things that they're going through um, as we try to um, to try to lead with empathy and you know so that's that's what it is for me that's my journey is like hey I've been doing this a long time but it, it took me a solid 20 years to to be able to be out with my people and and once I was it's like it's much easier to have authentic and genuine conversations with people. So that's that's kind of the, the little bit of the story of how I found the courage um, to compassionately lead.
3: Um, so yeah, it's it, I worked in corporate um, for a while, a long while, 10 or 12 years prior to working in college athletics. So my first Uh, job in college athletics, I was already 37 years old and I had been trained in corporate at two Fortune 500 companies. So I was, um, I think that helped me refine how to navigate two worlds as a black man to be able to uh, effectively speak and act in a corporate way. But you know, when I'm in Memphis with my friends act in a more natural way. So um, I think just over the past couple of years, I've started to just blend those more um, because that's who I am. I don't think I was two people, but I was definitely in two different roles—one that was more familiar and comfortable, and one that was, you know, more appreciative from corporate. So um, I think it started when I got to Northeastern, and I started to let my hair grow in a different way. Uh, Nevin, I'm sure you feel me. Uh, I'd always been a, you know, kind of a neat afro or a low cut or whatever. Um, but then my son, um, he let his hair start to grow. And, you know, and, I, and I, I just joined him. I told him I thought it was okay after I gave him a little trash talk uh, for a while. And then uh, I got the opportunity to interview at the University of New Orleans. And and I said, well, if this job is for me, then it's for me. It, it shouldn't matter what that looks like. And I did it. Um, Dr. Nick Lowe, to his credit, never said one thing about it. And people in fact know me. I got my hair trimmed just a little bit and one of the um, one of my colleagues' uh, sons said he's like six years old. Tim, I hate that you cut your hair. I like it because it's crazy like this. So it it helped me, uh, you know, feel really good about myself in that space. And then you know I had an incident uh, last summer when I was uh, racially pro- profiled, like many black and brown men have been. And it wasn't even a thought to utilize my voice to try to educate our student athletes and. You know, I ended up making a video that uh, has, uh, you know, 25,000 people now have seen it, but it was specifically made for our student athletes because I wanted them to understand the ones that look like me to understand that, you know, it can happen to anyone and they can identify with and the student athletes that did not look like me would understand that literally this can happen in any sector or any corner in this country to black and brown men, even those that they can't kind of tear down I put in a mugshot after some of these uh, you know violent interactions. So that was it wasn't even a thought to do that, but I think the whole liberation for me started, you know, several years ago when I just got to a point where I'm gonna be me all the time and not have to navigate this, you know, two dual kind of you know persons and just you know blend them into who I am. And that has opened up, I think. Allowed me to be even more transparent than I, I think I already was. I already was, and I think our student athletes uh, embrace that. So it's made our relationships much better too.
2: Uh, nothing. Um,
3: <laughs>
2: this is my lived experience. I'm a civil rights baby. I grew up in New York City, um, Borough of Queens, Hollis Queens. So I have been part of an inclusion space my entire life where I lived in Hollis my mother felt that it wasn't the education wasn't strong enough so she shipped this out to a predominantly white elementary school and there I had to fight struggle for my existence within that framework defend my hue and work with like-minded other other individuals for equality in that space as a young man not knowing that that's what I was doing but having to safeguard myself so I can get back home safely to my mom. You know, I went to a multicultural high school. I was able to go to Brooklyn Tech and everyone was right up the street from where you live right now. And that, I found out from at that point that it wasn't about your hue, it was about what you brought to the table that count for inclusion. So then I knew that this was something that was political in a sense, as we deal with the framework of our political environment. So it's not based upon your gender, it's not based upon your uh, your race, it's supposed what you bring to the table and how you uh, manage that. So after high school, I went on to New York Institute of Technology, I earned a uh, scholarship there to play basketball. And then I had another narrative out there because that was Long Island, it was a totally different, another world for me to encounter. And I had to manage that was a very few blacks there. So we had to fight for equality resources, um, looking to building a counter narrative to the narrative that was already there about privilege and power. So now you move on, I I started my athletic career there. So I've been in athletics like the two my uh, panelists for over 40 years now. And it has been very rewarding for me. And moving on here to HBCU uh, and working at Bowie State, I continue to work with like-minded individuals to talk about diversity and just because we're an HBCU, we have our diversity challenges like everybody else and we have to work through those issues and we have to continue to fight for the relevancy of HBCUs in this space. So I was born into inclusivity, uh, Nevin, and I continue to work within that space.
1: You know, when, when I hear uh, the three of you talk, one of the things that, that comes to mind is, is, is our racial identities, you know, our, our, our orientation, um, you know, our, our genders are so ingrained in our being that it should be easy for us to talk about the things and the challenges that we experience in the world. And what I find, especially as it pertains to, to activism, is that people seem to be very much, one, intimidated by the word activism, um, and, and two, really have difficulty engaging in conversations about um, salient parts of our identity, such as, as race and, and, and racism. So um, Tanya, can you share a little bit about uh, why you see or, or think um, that it's so difficult for people to really engage in these conversations in, in a, a meaningful and intentional way? Yeah,
4: I appreciate the question. You know. As I was thinking about it, I, I feel like there is, um, you know, there's a, there's, it's uncomfortable, right? There's a place of discomfort. There's, there's fear that's involved with it. Um, you know, we, right now, for our students, um, if you think about the way they were raised, they're raised in a place where you put things out and you're expecting thumbs up or likes or hearts. Um, to, to match that. And when you're speaking up against things that are wrong, um, you, know, you you don't know how they're going to be received. And so I do think um, the group that we're working with right now, this generation is killer. I, I love this generation. I know that uh, for, for a period of time, people were complaining about this generation, but this generation is magic um, because I do think they are finding new and different ways to speak up um, to to stand up for the people that um, you know are, are marginalized or are less fortunate than themselves uh, but I, I do think when we talk about that intimidation to me it, it comes down to discomfort and fear and this some some strange desire to be liked or, or be a part of a, a group and uh, you know so we have we have to help them fight through that you know but that's where I think that intimidation comes from.
1: Uh, Tim or, or Clyde, what what kind of things are you hearing from your student athletes as it pertains to uh, a lot of the, the social injustices that we're seeing, um, the, the racial injustices? What are, what are they saying to you and, and how is that informing your leadership?
2: Well, Nevin, you know, like Tanya just said, fear is, is what propels people to resist change. And no matter how bad, or good things are the human psyche is always vulnerable to manipulation for those in power to protect their privileges you know students like tanya just said are very very engaged we live in a technology driven environment there's no secrets out there no more you can't lie to them anymore so they are really in tune with and seeing who's genuine and who's not so they are seeking the truth. And that's what activism for me is all about, is that knowledge-based approach to understanding history, how we got here, why we're here, and where we're gonna go. Changing the changing the narrative to develop a counter narrative so it supports the goodness of everybody and it allows everybody to be successful in the moment. So what I hear from them is a lot of questions, a lot of questions, and they are questioning everything that comes along. and in our position as leaders, we can manage, make sure that we have the right answers for them or be able to get them the right answers so they are assured that we are have their best interests at heart and they can, we can build confidence in what they're doing as they move forward. Because if we send them out with a false narrative or we send them out with misinformation, it's gonna destroy the whole purpose of what they're trying to achieve.
3: You. Yeah, I'd I just like to add one thing is that, um, I think our, our students are looking to see what we do. I think, you know, after George Floyd particularly, there are a lot of people who rush to put out statements and, you know, a statement of support is, is good, but then what happens after that? And then, um, so our student athletes are wise enough to know, to see what we do. Um, and I think for departments that aren't diverse, I had several of my white male colleagues called me and asked me, could I speak to their student athletes? And of course I will do so, but the larger message is why don't you have anyone on your staff that can speak to them. Uh, I'm not expecting uh, for everyone to understand, you know, what it is to walk in these shoes and that's ridiculous to to assume so. However, that's why you surround yourself with, you know, with women and Latinos and LGBTQ uh, folks so they understand, they can provide you with the knowledge that's internal. And you don't have to pick up the phone and call Tim to speak to your student athlete. So um, our students are watching to see what we do. And uh, it, the time is now for us to step up to support them in the way uh, to, to feed into what Claude said, to make sure, just to feed into what they're doing so they can uh, continue to grow and see that we are uh, truly supportive of them with our actions.
1: That, that is such a, a, an important distinction, um, especially when we think about uh, the student athletes and just watching you all, especially as, as, as leaders. You know, I think so many student athletes really um, or are realizing their collective power. And as a result, they are organizing for, for change. And I think that's what's different than what we've seen in the past. But the, the challenge with that is the student athletes are still the ones that are furthest from the seat of power. Right, and, and they're the ones who are also being required to take the greater risk. And it, it really, it, in order for it to be effective, the opposite needs to happen. It needs to be those who are closest to power that are taking that risk. And, and Tim, when we think about um, the role of athletic directors specifically, how do you square your role as an athletic director with the duty that every coach and, and every athletic administrator has to really educate themselves and and be culturally competent
3: yeah uh, thank you Raskin. we 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 try to we try to educate them we brought in a resource Jen fry um to come and speak to our staff at our retreat just to start to educate them so they can ask questions and or feel more comfortable with at least having conversations with their student athletes and that's something that we'll continue to do with you and others just so we can continue to get ourselves better uh, we always ask our student athletes to get better, whether it's getting stronger, faster, you know, study harder. What are we doing as administrators to get smarter in this space? So that's a way that we've uh, tried to continue to educate ourselves so we can be there for them because it's so important for our coaches who have the closest relationships with our student athletes. I mean, they see them daily, they've been in their homes. Um, they have to be able to have some of these convers- conversations because at the end of the day, end of the day, we're all educators. And we're utilizing this thing that we love called sport to educate these student athletes. And we want to make sure that we are, um, we're doing our part by, you know, having, oh, I'm sorry, y'all can't see this book, but uh, by, you know, continuing to read and educate ourselves.
2: And, 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 you know, Evan, if I could, uh, Evan, I could jump in real quick and add to what Tim is talking about. You know, activism, when we teach our young men and even our staff, is not marching down the streets. I mean, that's just a more part of it. It's the back of the house political structure that we have to attack to make change. It's about these adjustments and improvements that are necessary. It's about challenging the economic system. It's about challenging the political system. about challenging the social structure and securing spaces at the table so our voices are heard. And I think that's one of the pieces when Tim talks about educating how we bring everybody together collectively to have that common ground and voices be heard and not alienated in this space.
1: Absolutely, thank you, Clyde and and Tim as well. Tanya, how do you engage staff who might be reluctant to participate in in some of the diversity and inclusion initiatives? Uh,
4: Excellent question. You know, I I work at a predominantly white institution and um, you know, one of the things that was was fortunate was once we you know a year ago once we went into COVID we started having weekly staff meetings and I'm so grateful that that decision was made for us to go weekly um, because obviously as we went through the spring things were happening um, too often um, but they were hap- happening at a pace where every Friday we came together as an entire department and and had conversations and so. Um, it started there, right, where you're having conversations in a, a platform where they're, everybody's there and, and I'm able to set the expectation that, hey, we've got to learn, we've got to have these hard conversations, we've got to educate ourselves. And then from there, we worked with our diversity, equity, and inclusion task force to, to bring programming um, and bring programming in a way that, that invites people that might not be that eager to, to have conversations. So whether that's through, like we did a film series, right, so we had people watch a movie, and then we got together and had small group conversations. Sometimes I think small groups are a little bit better than big groups when you're having really difficult conversations. Um, I I don't I don't know if I have the you know the, the magic wand to make it easier, but I think creating things like a safe space where you say, listen, like we're all we're all coming to this from a different place. We're all coming to this um, having different life experiences. And so let's have respectful dialogue and and really let's listen um, because we have so much to learn from from our our people in our department. So, um, you know, I I think leaders have to set the expectation that the expectation is that you're educating yourself um, and then trying to find different ways to create safe spaces so people can have the conversation. And then you got to hold people accountable, right? So we we're, right now we're taking a really good look in how we recruit student athletes and um, recognizing that there are some shortfalls in how we recruit student athletes. So once we work through it and we come up with um, better ideas on how to recruit, recruit um, a more diverse student athlete population, then there will there needs to be accountability for coaches who are doing it and not doing it. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you, Tanya. And you know, Tanya, you, you did something um, incredibly brave last year when you put uh, black lives matter on your basketball court what does what does black lives matter mean to the community at TW and and what was the, the process uh, that that led to that decision
4: sure you know again starting in in May um, on the heels of George Floyd actually it was before George Floyd it was um, when, when the news broke about Ahmad Arbery, we started to have really hard conversations, like I said, with our staff, and then uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd um, are, are murdered. And uh, again, we're just having conversations and we're learning and we're growing. And it became uh, understood that, that the statement Black Lives Matter was important to our, our students, our Black student athletes, our Black coaches, our Black staff members. And um, in those conversations, you know, at the same time, I think the NBA had it on, on their court. I just brought it up with our diversity equity and inclusion task force. I said, you know, I think this is important for our students to see that we will publicly state this and um, not just as as we talked about earlier, not just in a statement, that, but that will put it on our court um, and, that, that's really how it went. We just had a, a quick conversation. We thought it was important. We knew, we knew that the message mattered to our people. And so we did it. And, um, you know, I, I didn't, I, I don't ever ask for approval for what goes on the court. So I didn't feel like I needed to ask for approval uh, this time. And, and really my feeling was it's the right thing to do. And if somebody has a problem with it, I'll have a conversation with them about what, what we've all learned over the last um, couple months, and um, I, you know, I, I knew nobody was going to make me take it off, so um, that's kind of how that happened.
1: Well, you know, Tanya, the, the world needs more more leaders like like you, and and you know, when I think about human connection, it, it is so intrinsic, right? It's it's like a natural part of of just our existence, and we need those people who are going to continue to affirm and and accept difference because that's that's going to be the only path forward. So. So thank you for doing that,
4: um, yeah, Tim, And, and then, go Nevin, ahead. real quick on that, um, because I do think it's important. Uh, I'd be uh, I'd be lying if I told you I didn't get a lot of phone calls, um, f- both positive and negative. What I would say is that for myself, our coaches, our development staff, it allowed us to have conversations with people. So I got a lot of people saying we don't agree that you did that, and I just started to talk to them about why we did it. And, um, you know, if we moved somebody a little further along their spectrum, then good. Um, But I just think we do need to make statements and then be able to stand behind them and have conversations. I I think we've, we have a world right now that's super polarized and it's like, well, I either agree with it or I don't. And and there's space in between to have the conversation. So um, I, I think that was one of the greatest things that came out of it was this ability to have conversations with with uh, with students, with coaches, with with donors, with alumni, um, so that that was definitely a positive out of it. Thank you, Taya. Um, Clyde and
1: and, and Tim, uh, I guess along the same lines of of Black Lives Matter and kind of the national movement, one of the the most emotionally charged discussions in, in both professional sports and and college athletics is, is kneeling uh, during the national anthem and. Um, We've seen it from the WNBA to the NFL to the NBA to most recently the University of Kentucky men's basketball team. But one of the things that I really want to highlight here is that our athletes don't lead with activism, right? It's it's what all excuse me, it's what happens when they feel as though their stories aren't being heard or their existence isn't valued or That they are just missing something from their experience as a student athlete. And so, I I guess my question would be: um, you know, the stories that lead to these protests are often lost. So, how do you, as athletic leaders, really make sure that the message and the purpose and the why uh, stays top of mind?
2: I'll let Tim tackle that first. Go ahead, Tim.
3: (laughs) Okay. I think we have to be intentional with what we do with our student athletes. Um, you're right. I think you, it was so well put when you said it, they don't lead with activism. They, When their voices are stifled, they sometimes feel the need to do other things more um, more publicly. So, um, so when I've had a couple of examples, I'll go back to when I was at Clayton State. Um, our women's basketball team went to their coach and then they came to me and said they wanted to kneel. Well, first off, That was great because she had the relationship with them. And then through her, I had a relationship with, they would let us know first. So um, I wrote a letter. I spoke to them directly, but then I wrote a letter to all of our student athletes, just to make sure that they educated themselves on why they were protesting. I wanted them to be able to answer that question. I wanted them to be able to Um, articulate that. I wanted them to understand there will be, there may be ramifications. Some ramifications won't come from me because I support you. However, there will be people that are, you know, outside who may, you know, send you nasty messages. You know, they may say you'll never be hired in this town Well, the town was Atlanta. So that wasn't, that wasn't going to happen, but they may say, you know, you know, you won't get a job or so our, our women students kneeled and one of our donors, um, I have a fundraising background, but as AD, you do a lot more of that If you're not in that uh, directly, I had a donor who's he's a wonderful man. He was the president of the bank. He said, Tim, I get it. Why the ladies are doing this. However, I can't have the bank's name on associated with the women's basketball tournament that was hosted by this bank that we were able to have, you know, four teams come and play. The best thing about him is that he, he changes money to somewhere else in athletics. So he didn't pull his dollars. He put it on one of our educational uh, Opportunity. So that's the type of man he is and type of relationship we have. But our student athletes, our women's basketball team was not able to host that tournament the following year because we didn't have the sponsor to be able to help take care of those teams. And that was just what I told them. There may be some ramifications that you can't see um, that, um, you know, that happened some unintended consequences. And I want them to understand that going into it is always going to be a lot harder than. than than what you think it is. So I thought that was a, a really good lesson for them to learn. And then one other thing that we've done at the University of New Orleans um, is that we wrote in our message from the PA that please feel free to stand, sit, or kneel as we honor the flag and uh, for the national anthem. So we provided cover to students, to fans, to whomever who chose to recognize their pa- um, um, their uh, recognize being a patriot in a different way. And I talked to my president about it first. Uh, so I do kind of run things. Being a fundraiser, I want to make sure that, uh, and he's he's a great guy. So I knew what he would say anyway, but he was cool with that. And we ran the language by him. He said, absolutely, I believe in this wholeheartedly. And we haven't heard one thing about people standing or kneeling, um, you know, because of that. So I feel really fortunate that, um, you know, we have a team that embraced that, came up with the language, and our president is the type of man and leader who uh, supports that.
2: And and I just want to add in the things that Tim is doing at New Orleans, the ability to be mindful of people's rights to stand, sit or kneel, even leave the auditorium, the arena, if they do choose. So as long as they do it in a very positive way and they're not disturbing anybody else. Uh, The one thing about the kneeling situation, and we know it's taken on a a life of its own uh, through the political system, is that When folks kneel, stand, or leave the arena, I want to make sure our student-athletes know why they're kneeling. I just don't want them kneeling just because it's a fad thing. Why are you taking that knee? Why are you standing? Why are you keeping your hat on? It's very important for me because activism is a knowledge-based situation. Protests have been part of the educational system from the time education started here in America. Students have protested the status quo. But you gotta understand why you're protesting. I just don't wanna really be running down the street because everybody else is running down the street. I wanna know why I'm running, why I'm standing, why I'm kneeling. So I think it's very important as administrators, Tanya, Tim, and all everybody out there to have that educational discussion, find that space to make them understand this is why, because if someone's, they're gonna be questioned, just like we're questioned, they're get questioned. And I wanna make sure that they have the right responses to their feelings and their positions as they move forward. And this goes on and projects throughout everything they're gonna do in life. So it's very important for me to to have that uh, interaction with them on that level from an educational perspective.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, thank you Clyde and and Tim as well. You know, activism, uh, especially student athlete activism and, and even anger can be both rational and, and also revolutionary. And I think what is, what is so um, fascinating, I guess, are, are the ways that, w- that, that our student-athletes are sacrificing their bodies as a way to bring attention to harm. And, and when we think about just the, the physical display of an athlete, somebody who moves, who, who's in motion, on their knees, ceasing all movement, you know, when the pain is just so deep and, and so real and so unbearable for so many, um, it, it, it really just takes my breath away. And, um, and we should, you know, find ways to embrace that. So I appreciate everything that you shared. Ironically, for, for so many of us, the first place that we don't belong is in our own bodies. And if we think about this whole idea of belonging um, and, and, and almost like a, a, a corporal belonging, and what it really means to identify as a physical presence in the world, there, there are gaps between how we experience the world and how the world experiences us. And our student athletes are these incredibly talented, brilliant, beautiful people, but the minute they take that Jersey off and they step foot out into the community, they are seen for their bodies first, right? So I guess Tim and, and, and then Tanya, um, how can we go beyond just the X's and O's per se and, and really engage um, the broader community of, of business leaders of, of residents you know spectators who come to the games uh, and even law enforcement to embrace student athletes and, and and more broadly embrace people across different
3: yeah that's a re- that's a really tough one i think i think we have to understand i think we have to be realistic with our student athletes that we don't live in this know um, utopia that I mean this world is real and that was one of the things I wanted to to talk about um, with our student athletes with my video but I have one quick example so we had uh, uh, um, I'm six eight and we had a, a student so I, ha- I have developed a self-awareness of being six eight that I can't be an overly aggressive yeller screamer in my conversations with staff you know, I'm six eight and I'm a brother right so um, I know I can't do that because it will be totally, it will be received totally differently. So I have, a, um, I work with a colleague who was a lot more aggressive, uh, a white male than uh, he once told me and said, Tim, man, you're so calm. How do you, how do you stay so calm? Don't they make you mad? I said, yes, Jeff, but I'm a 6'8 brother. I can't yell and cuss and do those type of things. So it's just, I think, a level of self-awareness to 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 know who you are first, but then not just who you are, but... What this world really looks at our student athletes. I mean, the the fact that you know we still have to have conversations about the phrase "Black Lives Matter" is just ridiculous when we see that it's not valued on a daily basis. So, you know, uh, for our white colleagues, um, we need them to be honest that when you walk out of this and take this jersey off, they're going to see you as a threat. It's been portrayed for many years that you know black males are more aggressive um i was reading an article this megan markle thing has been fascinating but they had two articles from the same mag magazine in europe that um um what's william's wife name i can't remember it was she she was rubbing her baby her baby bump and said oh she's in love with her baby and baby bump the same magazine when megan markle was rubbing her baby bump is she obsessed with t- touching her baby the same picture of the same two women rubbing their baby bumps Portrayed totally different. So, it, when to think that um, you know this isn't systemic is, is is ridiculous. So we need to just be honest with our student athletes that you are looked at as violent. You know, if, if you um, the angry black woman, if you're a black woman, if you disagree in a way that you know sometimes you're portrayed as more angry, and that's you know gender and race. So. I think we have to be honest in our conversations with our student athletes to what the real world is. And it's different here. Hopefully, it's different in, in athletics. But once you walk out of the door, we, it's our duty to let them know what to expect. And it's our duty for to educate our white student athletes that this is a real thing that happens to your Black teammates. Yeah.
4: Um... You know, I, I think about what Tim just shared and it was during an open forum this past spring where we have student athletes um, who are sharing their experiences. And I have a black track athlete who says like, do you realize that I get stopped every day on our campus? It, it floored me because I had no idea. And so when, when you have, conversations with law enforcement, and you have conversations with faculty members or conversations with donors or business owners and say, do you realize that this is going on? And literally how many white people are ignorant of the fact or blind of the fact or, or covering their ears? And, and so it's it's spending time with your black student athletes to find out what their experiences are like, and then going and talking to people and demanding difference. And and, uh, you know, I, th- I think about that experience and what it led to or conversations with our police department. We have a an incredible uh, police chief, uh, Chief Tate, who is a black man and he's he's doing everything he can to chase, change his police force. Um, but but it starts with like a general awareness and then getting pissed off and doing something about it. Um, and, you know, again, you, you talk about people waking up, I, I think 2020 was a year where people freaking woke that the hell up. So um, once that happens, you need to get out and talk to people about the wrongs, the atrocities that are going on and, and work to make change.
2: And hey, hey, can I add a little bit to what Tim and, and Tanya said, you know, I, I'm working on a terminal degree right now and I have a professor, Dr. Will Parker. And one of the things he said, and he's a big man like Tim, he's like six, eight also too, and he said, my blackness gets there before I do. So we have to recognize that and teach our young men and women what they're facing and dealing with when they venture outside of our protective areas in athletics. And Tim's right, when you take off that uniform, or I take off my tie and I put on my Adidas sweatsuit or underarm sweat sweatsuit, I'm just another black face out there. I'm not an athletic director, I'm not a vice president. So I have to be conscious of that. So I have to teach my young men and women how to react. Reaction time is the difference in consequences and repercussions. How you articulate your position, your movements, just simple movements made a difference. As Tanya just said, walking across a campus, minding your freaking business and you get stopped, why? And they'll justify why they do this to you. But you gotta be able to withstand those types of situations and work through it. And that's what this whole activism is all about, the knowledge-based approach to protection and moving forward in the moment.
0: Thank you, Clyde. Uh, just and and
3: one you. thing? Um, yes, yeah, go ahead, Before go ahead. I was stopped, there was a, they created a commission in Newton, Massachusetts Um, where I lived when I was stopped and racially profiled. And so they, uh, the the mayor, to her credit, put together this commission to investigate this and they come out with the recommendations. So I spoke to the commission and they asked, what would you want to happen out of this? And my hope is that I'm policed just like my white male counterparts are policed. That's it. That is my hope. I want to be stopped when I do something wrong. (laughs) And if I don't do anything wrong, I don't want you drawing a gun. I mean, that's not too much to ask. I don't want a traffic incident to turn into murder. And so that's what I would want, you know, moving forward from law enforcement. But the same thing on our campuses. I want, you know, our black male students and black female students and brown students to be able to walk across campus and not be stopped like their white counterparts. If we can do that, then we we're at a good place.
1: Wow. Um, so I, I know we're, we're running a little bit low on time here. Um, we are getting a lot of questions coming in the chat. Uh, I, I do have one more question before we start to ask some of the questions from the Q&A. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit more about not only what it means to, to foster uh, allyship and really create that culture of belonging, which you know all of you have kind of touched upon in really eloquent, eloquent ways, but, um, but also alleviate some of the emotional labor that student-athletes, coaches, and, and even administrators of color um, face not only having to exist but to teach and, and do the work to educate everyone else.
2: It never, you're never going to get rid of the emotional lift that we all go through. You know, I always tell people, I can move my arm here and I can blink, but sometimes my emotions are uncontrollable. So I have to manage, like Tim said, he's 6'8", he has to control how he is in a certain spaces. So you have to control and manage those emotions. And it's a a learned process because there are times when we all have flown off the handle and done said things and done things. But the key in life is to how now do you move forward? How do you manage your emotions? How do you manage the situations? How do you approach situations? So that's the teaching part that must be had. It continues to have, even at my age, I'm still learning. And until it's time to stop learning, which will be when that lid is shut, I will continue to be in that space of educating myself and helping others get through the same challenges that i went through and hopefully they don't have any negative consequences on their yellow brick journey
3: and and i don't an emotion as far as being the answer for all things black i'm not good at that because i will try to justify it every time and i know it's unfair But, you know, I think that's part of the burden that I've accepted to try to educate my colleagues. I want them to educate themselves, of course, and recommend books and videos and movies and do all of that. But I take it upon myself to do that. So I I know I'm adding to that and that becomes worrisome for many of us. I get it. But that's just one thing that, you know, I have wide shoulders for a reason. I think I can carry that to help, you know, move us forward.
4: Yeah, uh, I think maybe the only thing I could add is I, I don't think it's wrong to, to ask, is it okay if I ask you a couple questions? Is it okay if I, I can learn from you today? Um, but there, there are so many other resources. So like as a leader, diversify your portfolio of where you're getting, getting help from. You know, you got people on your campus that can help. you got, like you said, books, movies, you got a lot of ways to educate yourself. So you can definitely diversify. it. And then when you're sitting down with a black colleague, like ask if it's okay, if you can ask some questions. And if they say no, respect that.
1: Yeah, I think all of those are really good points, you know, and and, and as we think about that emotional labor piece, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm an educator, I'm the person that gets paid to do this work. And part of my job is trying to equip people with a certain type of lens, right? A certain type of, of, of competence or a certain type of consciousness. And it's, it's very different. than um, just rolling up on a black person, you know, in your athletic department and saying, Hey, can you break down systemic racism? And so, you know, I think Tanya brings up a good part about just asking, you know, for permission, is it okay? Uh, first, before you just jump right into it and and a lot of folks they want to engage like Tim just mentioned um, but not all do you know some just need a day off some just are, are tired or fatigued or emotionally drained and and the reality is that we need this the inclusion and, and belonging in those psychological safe spaces all over the place and we the, the, the four of us we can't be in all these spaces so, you know, our job is really to push you to think and trust that, that everything that you need to know about how to be an ally is, is something that you can do for yourself. And and it's not something that we're always asking other people to do for. So what I wanna do uh, quickly is, is get into some of the questions that we have um, from uh, some of the participants. And the first question, I'm gonna throw it out to whoever would like to answer. Uh, what advice can you give to someone who wants to continue to have these conversations and help affect change, but those who are in leadership or supervisory positions seem to dismiss uh, the ideas and there is a lack of support. That's a loaded question. Say that again, (laughs) Neva. What advice do you have for for those who want to be a part of the change, but there's a lack of support from, from leadership?
2: Well, you know, I would say really quick, you you can't give up if you think this is the right thing. And you're speaking from I continue to say that a base of knowledge why you're doing what you do, you can never give up or give in because when you give up or give in, you're part of the the narrative. And if you want to create a counter narrative, you got to come from a position of strength, of integrity, of perseverance to be in that place that people said, oh, Clyde knows what he's talking about. Tim knows what he's talking about, Tanya knows what they're talking about, and they have rational rational reasons for being in that space. So you just can't give up and give in. Uh, and I think it's, it's simple. It could be a little bit more uh, expanding than that, but you just can't give in. If you believe it, you're right. And if you look at protests, people continue to do things because they believe, right or wrong, they believe in what they believe in, but you gotta be able to justify that belief.
4: I might just throw in, uh, I guess, two things. One, recognize what your sphere of influence is and and you can still do work in, in different ways without it going all the way to the top. Um, But if you have access to whoever that supervisor is, ask them, try to get them to articulate why. And if it's, we don't got time, we don't got money. All right, then solve those two problems for them because you got time and you don't always need a lot of money. Um, And if it, if it's something bigger than that, then you might need to find a different, different organization to work for.
1: Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm a strong believer that um, when, when people ask, you know, their staff to kind of create a case for inclusion, it's just not fair because what you're saying is somebody is, is proof to me why I should value you in the space. So the the opportunity is for more of our leaders to really step up and, and what I see is that that's changing, it's, it's really um, perhaps one of the first times in, in my 40 years where people are looking inwards and they're locating themselves in the harm that's being caused to a lot of our young people, a lot of our student athletes, and they're 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 starting with themselves. And, and that's been very different than in the past. You know, people have to go to these leaders and, and say, this is what we want to talk about about and why. So I'm hopeful moving forward that that's something that that will continue and, and folks will continue to seek out you know ways to to support the community.
2: And never before you get to the next question based upon what you just said and we haven't mentioned it yet but our student athlete advisory committees are very important to how we move forward in this space as well because they have the heartbeat of their their peers and they bring back issues that I th- administrators, we're talking about money and moving forward and facilities and all these other kind of things. We sometimes miss the social content, especially living in their world. So they're very important to this process.
1: Absolutely, Clyde. Um, so let's see what we have. The next question. Um, have you added student athletes to your senior administration meetings to incorporate the student athlete voice in the social justice efforts? If so, how do you navigate that incorporation when you have other confidential issues that need to be discussed, such as uh, compliance challenges?
2: Well, like I just said with the SAC, we include their voice in what we're doing, and we include them when we have a broad-based discussion and we excuse them. Just like I'm in Cabinet, we bring in certain departments to talk about certain areas, and then there's other things that they shouldn't be privy to. They excuse themselves. So it's it's how you manage them and their voice and get them involved.
3: Yeah, and we include our SAC president in our annual retreat. So they get a chance to see our, what we progressed on in our strategic plan, what the plan is for the next year. And when we bring in a speaker, like last summer we brought in Jen. Um, um, Damien, our SAC president, he was, you know, front and center. So I think it's important. That's the way we do it. There's a number of ways to do it, but we like to bring them in on that year so they can get a big picture of what that you know subsequent year will be like.
4: Yeah, quick. I love, our, I love that our, Go ahead, comes, Sorry, it comes to our all staff. Um, and then we do have a Black Student Athlete Alliance um, who will come to all staff on occasion. Um, but, but actually inviting student athletes to your senior meetings, I think is something I'm going to, I'm going to chew on a little bit and see if there's a way to incorporate them.
1: All right. So we have five minutes left. Um, I just first want to say thank you to, to each of you. I mean, it's just been, um, an honor to be able to, to share this time together and just hear all of your the wonderful work that you're doing in the community and, and, and on campus and in the department and, and just um, the example that you set for for your colleagues uh, all across the country. So I'm gonna ask you uh, just uh, if you wanna share one final thought or, or piece of advice uh, that you would like to share with the folks that are listening in today, uh, what would that be? And, and you know I'll start, I'll start with you, Tim, and, and then uh, Tanya and Clyde, you can kind of close it out for us.
3: I think this, the thought I'd like to share is that we should just listen. Listen to our student athletes. They'll tell us what they need. Um, and, and it's not just for our white colleagues. I need to listen as much. I don't know as much as I think I do. Um, anyway, so we just need to listen. They'll tell us you know, where they want to go. Um, we had a, we're going to start an LB, LGBTQ plus uh, group underneath our privateers for equality. Um, uh, umbrella and that includes our social justice committee the next ne- next lab will be for lgbtq students because they said that that's something that they wanted so we're just trying to listen and be there for them so i would encourage everyone to listen and try to put together um, programming or or whatever to support what they want so what their wants are i'll jump in um, you
4: know i, I I said it before, um, when you hear a colleague say something negative about this generation, squash it, because this generation is is incredible, and they're going to make us better leaders. So, um, as Tim said, continue to listen to them. find intentional ways in small groups where you can actually hear their voice, because um, they're going to guide you in, in what you need to do.
2: And, and, and I'll just, and especially with Tim and Tanya have said, you know, we got two eyes and two ears. I need to be aware of my uh, environment. I need to listen more, not just hear, but listen more. And I got one mouth and speak when it's appropriate. Um, like I said, you can't give up and you can't give in. And I, I tell my students, I don't know a coach or a player that won everything that they they started out to do. There's no one who's undefeated. So you might lose a game in two, but you can be defeated. And when you get defeated, then there's, you, you take away hope. And we should always maintain hope no matter how bad things seem to be. You know, We got student athletes going through mental health challenges right now. We got staff going through mental health challenges right now. They're going through physical challenges right now. And it's all a combination and confluence of the time that we're in. So we just can't give up. We just can't give in. You gotta be that person out there to provide confidence and be in focus for them to see who you are, because the kids will see, the student athletes will see fakeness in a minute. <laughs> they are very aware of who is real and who is not. So, I, that would leave that on that note and say just be genuine and be involved and listen to them and get down on their level a little bit. You know, we don't have to bring them up as much as we need to find a medium for both of us. Absolutely.
1: And- and I would just add um, to explicitly state your support of, of student athlete activism and, and your desire to protect their rights and safety um, and think about what that looks like. You know, I think a lot of times we're, we're well-intentioned, but we, we don't translate those into action. And so if we're not saying it, if we're not speaking it, if we're not showing it, our student athletes don't know, you know, that, that we're here to support them. So, so that's a, an important first step. Um, I want to thank each of you for, for joining today. I'm going to turn it over to Bob, who's going to close us out. Um, but I look forward to, to, to staying in touch and, and, and partnering with you all, um, you know, con- continuously. And, and thank you again for your efforts.
0: Nevin, uh, great job quarterbacking the session. Uh, Clyde, Tanya, you know, NACTA's mission is education. And education is best learned from candor, and you guys have been awesome. I mean, you were honest in all your answers, and I can't thank you enough for your honesty, your integrity. A uh, couple quick takeaways that that I learned is, you know, um, if there are two differences of opinion, there is space between those opinions for discussion. Very, very important. And then, you know, the last thing that, uh, you know, Tim said listens great. And and then then Tanya, um, you know, as much as we hear scuttlebutt and talk about, oh, this generation, this and that, but, you know, turning it around, making it positive, they will make us better leaders. I mean, really positive, positive words. And again, thank you all so much. I know our members learned from this and we're all gonna be better for it. So thank each of you again, um, have a wonderful day and um, you know, stay safe, thank you. Bye y'all.
4: Thanks Bob, thanks Nathan. Bye-bye.
3: Joe, so, I appreciate it, it was awesome. Good luck Tim. Thanks, thanks Claude. I appreciate it, it's good to win.
1: Thanks everyone.
2: Good job Nevs.
1: Thanks Clyde.